You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned afterward for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Mosaic Church today. Let's go ahead and get into our scripture reading today. It's going to be from Luke chapter 16. You can follow along on your screen. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. And send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place torment. Abraham replied, well, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. That's the reading of God's word. God, all God's people said, amen. Hey, I've got a great idea. Why don't we talk about the most offensive thing we can think about today? Hmm, why don't we talk about hell? Now, now, don't go away. Just give me a chance. Let me just say four things to you real quickly before I begin to at least convince you to give me a chance. Number one, one of the frequent criticisms that I hear about the church is that it's out of touch with what the culture at large is talking about. Now, if what that means is we don't talk enough about Justin Bieber or Geico commercials or something like that, then I suppose we're guilty as charged. But what I think is inside that critique is the feeling that the church doesn't talk about things that are relevant to everyday life. But of course, I beg to differ with today being Exhibit A, because you know you talk about hell. You you think about it. It's on our TV shows. It's on our bookshelves. It's in our, our bookstores back when we could go to bookstores stores. And if you still feel that way at the end of the message today, well, then come talk to me because I think you might feel differently. Number two, though, it gives me no pleasure to talk about judgment. And I don't think it should give you pleasure either. And therefore, number three, I actually thought about calling Pastor Brett and asking him to preach this message today. Number four, if you're visiting for the first time today, well, congratulations. Now, of course, I'm kidding. But this isn't something that we preach on regularly. You should know that. And as I was preparing, I actually tried to remember the last time that hell was the topic of the message or the sermon or whatever, and I couldn't do it. So if you're saying, oh, I knew it, or, you know, I tune in and there they are talking again about hell every time I talk, uh, you go to a church, I'm talking about hell. 
Now, I can't speak for any other place, any other church, but here, that's just simply not true. But the main reason we are talking about this today is because we are in the middle of a series called What's After ATX. Along with hundreds of other churches in the greater Austin area, we're taking a look at what the Christian scriptures have to say about life after death through the lens of near-death experiences. And of course, if you've been here, you've heard about heaven. But today, what you're going to hear about is what almost one in four NDEers come back and say they experienced, which is hell. For example, Dr. Maurice Rawlings, he was an atheistic cardiologist, a heart doctor. He didn't believe in God, supernatural afterlife. But then he had a 40-year-old man flatline right in front of him in his office one day. And these nurses all came in the room. They tried try to get the man over to the ICU. And Dr. Rawlings reported this is what happened. Quote, I had to insert a pacemaker wire into the large vein. The patient began coming too. But whenever I would reach for instruments and stop compression, he would lose consciousness and die again. Each time he regained a heartbeat, he would scream, I'm in hell. He was terrified and pleaded with me to help him. In fact, this episode literally scared the hell out of me. After several resuscitations, the man pleaded, don't you understand? I'm in hell. Each time you quit, I go back there. Don't let me go back to hell. I dismissed his complaints and told him to keep his hell to himself until I could get the pacemaker in him. Well, the man kept begging Dr. Rawlings to pray for him, and Dr. Rawlings sort of told him, you know, straight Star Trek style, I'm a doctor, not a preacher. Uh, but the man kept saying, pray for me. So Dr. Rawlings sort of made a prayer up on the spot from the bits and pieces he could recall from his Sunday school childhood, and this was the prayer he said he led the man to pray. Quote, Lord Jesus, I ask you to keep me out of hell. Forgive me my sins. I turn my life over to you. If I die, I want to go to heaven. If I live... I'll be on the hook forever. Now, again, maybe not the, the deepest, richest prayer that's ever been prayed, but the man stabilized. He recovered. And, and days later, Dr. Rawlings went back to the man and asked him to talk about and to describe what he had been experiencing. But the man could remember none of the bad, only the good parts of his NDE after the point of his prayer of repentance, though he was fully lucid, fully articulate during the whole experience. Now, this thing, it changed Dr. Rawlings' beliefs. He became not only a Christian, but an NDE researcher, and he wrote a series of books about these experiences. And he reports, he's found, along with many others, that NDEs in general even the positive ones are largely underreported because of people's being afraid of being labeled as crazy or, or a nutcase or, or perhaps of hurting other people by sharing their experience. And if that is the case about the good ones, and I believe it is, how much more do you think that hellish NDEs are also underreported? One Dutch researcher concludes like this about hellish NDEs. Their horror, they, hellish NDEers, sometimes find themselves pulled even deeper into the profound darkness. The NDE ends in this scary atmosphere. Such a terrifying NDE usually produces long-lasting emotional trauma. The exact number of people who experience such a frightening NDE is unknown because they often keep quiet out of shame and guilt. All right, so what do we learn from all of this? What do we learn from hellish NDEs? Well, for the next few minutes today, I want to try to make the case that what hellish NDEs show us is what the Christian scriptures have said all along. And I think, 
I think, that if you've never thought about this topic, the topic of hell, deeply before, if you'll do that today, that it's going to be, at the minimum, not only eye-opening for you, but it might just also, possibly, hopefully, be life-changing for you as well. So I want to show you now five things that hellish NDEs mean. Here are five things that hellish NDEs show us. You ready? If you're not, here we go anyway. Number one, hellish NDEs show us, first of all, a place that Jesus Christ was right about. It's a place that Jesus Christ was right about. What do I mean? I mean, not only did Jesus believe in hell, not only did Jesus teach and talk about hell more than any other person or teacher in the Christian scriptures, the Bible, but how he talked about it is exactly how people who have experienced hell in an NDE talk about it. Jesus alternately, like they do, talk about darkness, a pit, fire at different points. In our reading today, we just went through it, of course, was about one of the parables that Jesus taught. It was specifically about hell. And we should remember that the same Jesus who taught about the father's heart of love towards the prodigal son in Luke 15, it's the same Jesus who teaches us about hell. Luke chapter 16. Now, I'm going to unpack this parable as we go, but for now, Number one, we should just acknowledge what these NDEs show us, which is that Jesus was right. There is a hell, which means this. Any spiritual worldview, any faith system, including any version of the Christian faith that does not acknowledge this and include this cannot be telling you the truth. If you believe heaven is real because Jesus talked about it, you should also do the same for hell. So number one, hellish NDEs show us a place that Jesus Christ was right about. Number two, hellish NDEs also show us a place that honors your choices for forever. It honors your choices for forever. Last week we heard the story, if you were here, of someone by the name of Dr. Howard Storm. And he was an atheistic professor. He, he died and he went to hell only, thankfully, to be rescued by Jesus at the last moment. And one of the things he described in another interview, which I saw with him, was meeting people in hell he called kindred spirits. They were selfish, skeptical, cynical like himself. He said he couldn't make out anyone's face in hell, but he could recognize people by who they were at their core. And this is unbelievably fascinating because this is exactly what Jesus teaches who people are, what people are like in hell. Look now at the two main characters in this parable, Luke 16. The first character is Lazarus. He's the poor beggar. Now, this is the only parable of Jesus, you may know this, to feature a character with a name. His other parables talk about all kinds of folks, vineyard owners, sowers, shepherds, but no one ever has a name but here. There's someone actually with a name, but this is odd because you'd figure if one character in a story has a name, you would expect the other one to have one as well. But there's only one man with one name here. There's Lazarus, and then there's a rich man. This is showing you a contrast. One man has a name. He's a real, full person in life and in heaven, but in hell, the other man only has kind of identity. See, Lazarus, he's still a person. He's still human. The, the, the other man's name is gone. He is either, this is showing us, he is either a rich man or he's nothing. See, in both heaven and hell, God has honored the choices of each. As in this life, Lazarus, he still depends on God to care for him. But the rich man, 
Well, let's see how he is behaving in hell. Commentators have noted that for a long time, this rich man is astonishingly blind. Even though he's in hell, he's still ordering people around. I mean, he's ordering Lazarus around like, like Lazarus is the water boy. Go fetch me water. Abraham, send Lazarus here. Send him to my brothers. See, nothing fundamental about him has changed. And he strongly insinuates that God did not give him enough information about the life to come. Go to my five brothers and tell them because they don't know enough. If they knew enough, if they got enough information, they wouldn't come here. Hint, hint, cough, cough. I didn't have enough information. God, you didn't tell me. I'm here, and it's your fault. See, even in hell, there's no humility. There's no repentance. He's still trying to get on top of everyone. God. Abraham, Lazarus, he's still trying to make the rules, even though it's impossible, but he can't see it. He isn't humbled or repentant at all. What's happening? The rich man's choice to be himself is being honored. His choice to live this life right now as he saw fit is being honored. His choice to live out his own personal truth for forever is being honored. Notice something else. He doesn't ever try to get out. He only ever tries to get Lazarus in. And that's the reason why if you've got the idea, if your idea of God, the supernatural, the afterlife, is that God, you know, when it comes to hell, just sort of sadistically, you know, pushes people in. They try to crawl out. He sort of flicks them and says, no, no, it's hell for you. Go back now. It's just not right. The only time Jesus ever describes a person in hell, the person doesn't even ask to get out. He just keeps on being himself, blaming, ordering around, living out forever in the life to come, who he began to be here. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. In the long run, the answer to those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? Wipe out their sins and at all costs give them a fresh start? He did on Calvary to forgive them but they don't ask for forgiveness to leave them alone? Well, that's what hell is. Don't you see? God gives you exactly what you want, yourself forever or him forever. In the end, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. So number one, in hellish NDE show us that Jesus was right. Number two, it shows us a place that honors our choices for forever. Number three, hellish NDE show us a place that exposes our hearts right now. Let's look at the key surprise in the rich man's life, the main twist in the parable. What's the surprise? What's the twist here? Well, in Israel of that day, the rich man would not have been an atheist. Uh, those didn't really exist in that culture, nor would he have been a, a Roman pagan. Uh, no, he would have been a Jew instructed in the law of God. And so here, he's a God-fearing person who's in hell. What happened to him? How did he get there? Jesus something shows us something profound in verse 25. Let's look at it. It says, but Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things. Lazarus received bad things. Now he's comforted here and you are in agony. So what's Jesus getting at? 
Well, any intro to philosophy class you take will usually talk about, tell you about something called the, the sumum bonum, which is not the U2 singer's full name. Sorry about that. But it means literally the highest good. And, and philosophers generally propose that every person has this. Every person lives for this. Every person has the, a sumum bonum. It drives their identity. What's your meaning in life? It comes from your sumum bonum. What gives you purpose? What gives you uh, a sense of peace? It's your sumum bonum. It's your highest good good. And so with the rich man, Abraham tells him, you've already had that. You've had your highest good. What was it? Abraham calls them his good things, his good things. So, so how could going after good things in this life lead him to go to hell in the next? Well, look who Jesus was preaching this parable to. It wasn't bad lawbreakers, immoral lawbreakers. It was good, God-fearing law keepers, God-fearing, commandment-keeping, family values-loving, maybe wealthy even, Pharisees. Why would Jesus teach this to the Pharisees? Why would, why would he not just condemn, but like use the most offensive language possible to insinuate that a bunch of God-fearing, commandment-keeping people are going to hell? This doesn't make sense Unless you can see, unless we can see what Jesus saw, which is that these Pharisees are not only trying to earn their way to God's good favor and grace through their behavior, but they are also using their morality as leverage over others. Their good thing, their morality, has become their ultimate thing, and it's twisted them. Now, I know, let's apply this for a moment. I know it's easy. I know it's easy when you read the news, when, when, you, when you read about certain activities to inherently judge categories of people. And I'm not saying, of course, that we shouldn't judge right from wrong, make laws about that. We have to, and I'll come back to that. But what we should never do is begin in the place where we say something like this, post this, tweet this, that I just can't understand why someone would do that. Please don't say, I just can't fathom, can't grasp why someone would do a bad thing like that. Because let me tell you, if you claim to be a Christian and you say that, post that, think that, tweet that, and that's not only to be a failure, to be a human being at some level, it's a failure to understand the gospel because the gospel shows us why someone, a person, anyone would do that. Because the gospel shows us that your heart is the same as my heart. Your skin color may be different. Uh, your education may be different. Your language, culture may be different. But your heart, oh, that's the same. Your heart, my heart, their heart, it's the same. And so if you say, I don't understand why someone could do that, now your good thing, your version of morality had just become weaponized against your fellow man and woman. If your good thing in life is being better than someone else for some reason, if my good thing, let's just talk about it. If my good thing in life is not being like one of those people who, let's say, wear masks, who don't wear masks, who want to reopen, who don't want to reopen, if I'm judging those categories, Categories of people, guess what I've earned? Oh, I have earned the title, the same title that Jesus gave the Pharisees over in Matthew 23, where he calls them sons of hell. Oh, sons of hell. And do you know what Abraham calls this man here? He calls this, he doesn't call him rich man. Abraham only calls him son. Why? Because a son of hell is just someone who builds their identity on 
anything other than loving God, being found in God. The Pharisees are doing this with their ability to obey and their morality. And we can do this with anything. Just fill in the blank. And if we have a greater good than loving God at the center of us, then like the Pharisees, we begin to twist ourselves and destroy others because now we are releasing the fundamental nature of the fire of hell all around us. In other words, hell is a good thing that's become a bad thing because it's become your ultimate thing. I'll read it again. Hell is a good thing that's become a bad thing because it's become your ultimate thing. And in light of that truth right there, let me just speak to something that I've been carrying around for uh, the last few weeks. Maybe you have too, which is specifically the Ahmad Arbery shooting. And I want to connect it to this scripture and this thought for just a minute. That truth that hell is a good thing that's become a bad thing because it's become an ultimate thing shows us how a good thing like loving your culture can go bad. This is how what looks like God-fearing, commandment-keeping, in this case specifically white people, can get in the back of a pickup truck, track down a black man, threaten him, and have it end with a dead body in the middle of the road. Because a good thing, the loving things we purport to love like family, culture, tradition, honor, if they themselves become the ultimate thing, they become hellish things, which in turn tend to oppress. See, now my culture becomes the ultimate culture. My people or your people or their people are the better people. And if you believe your people are better people, you'll do anything to keep your people in a position of power. Now listen, listen to all for just a moment. Listen to everyone, but especially my white brothers and sisters. I'll tell you, black men are not a threat. You can say it with me right now. Just go ahead and say it. Black men are not a threat. They are our brothers. They are our leaders. They are artists. They are our pastors. They are professors or thinkers. They are a gift. And neither are, since we're going there, are Asian American people a threat, Asian people a threat. It's so sad and laughable at the same time that anyone would consider an Asian American person to be a threat simply because a virus exists in the world. Do you know who's really a threat? It's the person who believes that another person is inherently a threat because of their ethnicity or their race. The people who believe that are the ones pulling the trigger, throwing the acid, doing those things and and doing the violence. Morgan, Morgan, are you trying to offend me today? No, I just want us to love one another better. Now listen, listen, for all of us, all of us, let me get you back here, all of us. Look, look at this now in the parable, at this rich man in hell who got his good thing here, lived for his good thing here. Look at him first. Look at what it did to him in this life. It turned him into someone who neglected the poor, created an other out of someone else. Then look at what it cost him in terms of eternity. Now ask yourself, what's my good thing? What's my ultimate thing? Is it worth living for whatever it is? See, hell exposed this rich man's heart for what it was, and it can do the same for ours. Number four, number four now, moving on. Some of you are saying, thankfully, number four, though, it's a place that shows us that God is a God of love. Oh, so there's a place uh, that shows us a God of love, but this is hard. I understand this one too. This is hard for us to reconcile. And like most other Christians, like a lot of ministers, I get asked, 
this question or a version of it all the time. How can God be a God of love and be a God who judges? If he is loving and perfect, he should forgive everyone and accept everyone. I get it. It's a reasonable objection. But let me ask you, how many of you love someone? Of course, your hand goes up. But I mean, really love someone. You've sacrificed blood, sweat, tears, money, education, raised them, loved them, married them, cared for them. Now, how many of you have ever had someone you loved like that turn around on you and ru- or ruin their life? Maybe ruin yours. They cheated on you or cheated on their spouse, got hooked on drugs like you saw in that video or, or, or abused their kids. How many of you would just stare blankly at them? Or would you? motivated out of love, perhaps become angry. Christian writer, evangelist Becky Pippert writes in her book, she says, think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. See, ultimately, the objection that God uh, cannot be both a God of love and a God of judgment is like saying that the same person cannot love someone and be angry at them at the same time. We know this is simply not the case. A God of love must also be a God of justice. Love that turns a blind eye to justice, or a blind eye to injustice, is no love at all. And talk of justice, furthermore, with no execution of justice is no justice at all because when a judge loves right and hates wrong. He or she upholds the law to ignore justice. And judgment would actually be hateful towards people, towards you. And therefore, just like with this case, to ignore the rich man and his choices. If God ignored this man's actions, that would actually be unloving of God. It would force us to become a kind of ultimate moral vigilante. It would force us to pick up the sword every time in vengeance because we didn't believe that God would. Oh, but let me tell you, God will because he loves people and cares about how we treat each other. That's why. In the end, finally, number five, hell shows us a place that can heal our need if we'll allow it. Can heal our need if we'll allow it. And what need is that? Here it is. We need to know that we are loved enough to let go of ourselves. We need to know we are loved enough to let go of ourselves. So how do we get that? Well, let me show you how we don't get that first, because we don't get that through asking what the rich man asked for. What does the rich man ask for? Well, the rich man asked for Lazarus to be sent back and sent to his brothers, which, you know, on one hand seems like kind of the right request, like God, you know, go send a ghost to them and scare them. You know, God sent like Jacob Marley back to scare Scrooge and to live and ride and thinking straight. But Abraham says, no, no, no. Even if they see a dead man, come back to life, some people still won't believe. What's he saying? He's saying that the fear of hell in the end will never be enough to keep most people from it. The fear of hell won't put out the fire of hell in us. Using hell like a scare tactic, it won't work. So what will change us? What can change us? It's what 
over and over. These people who experience these hellish NDEs come back and talk about not simply that they experienced hell, but that they experienced someone loving them in hell. And that changed them. Where then can we get, can we see that kind of love? Oh, Jesus points us to it at the end of the parable. And Abraham said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Now, you, you think, what? Someone won't be convinced if they see someone rise from the dead. Like, didn't Jesus rise from the dead? He did. But let me tell you, had knowledge alone of those facts, even while they're incredibly compelling and historically true, Jesus says, that's not always enough. So what can produce the kind of love in us that will allow us to let go of ourselves, our good things now, our identities now? Jesus says it's a kind of understanding of Moses and the prophets. Well, what did Moses and the prophets tell us? Well, Moses told us that to wipe away wrongdoing toward God and each other, a sacrifice had to be made, that a, that a lamb would have to be broken and go into the fire and take that person's place in the fire. The prophets later told us over and over that one day one person would come. Someone would come and be marred, be disfigured, that the punishment for our peace would be on that person. Those prophets told us that one day someone like a lamb would come and be pierced through to repair us. Who's that one? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Moses and the prophets tell us that Jesus came to take the fire of hell upon himself, to go into the darkness of hell for us, to go into that pit of despair for you and for me. And once you see that hell points us toward a kind of a love that took hell upon himself, into himself, if your heart is touched, moved, softened by that today, Here's now how you receive that kind of love. Here's how. You simply ask God for a new name. You ask God for a new name. What do I mean? Back to the beginning. One man in the parable had a name based on his identity. And like every name, every good thing apart from God, it burns up in the fire in the end. But the other man had a name. His name lasted. His name was Lazarus. Do you know what Lazarus means? It means this. It's beautiful. It means he whom God helps. He whom God helps. We are meant to see that the one whom God receives, the one whom God saves, is the one who sees themselves as the one who needs God's help, who must have God's intervention, must have God's rescue, saving power in their life, front to back, first to last, A to Z. See, when you see yourself like that, as the one who needs God's help, or you will perish apart from him, that changes you. It humbles you. Now there's no more looking down on people around you. There's no more resisting others when they come to you to tell you, you're like an addict here. You've got this there. No, no. You say this today simply, I am Lazarus. I am the one who needs God's help or I perish. If you can do that, see that, say that today. Let me tell you, that's the one that God saves. I hope you'd say, that's me today. And if you've never said that before, never prayed that before, just a moment, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And today can be your day to receive this kind of salvation. It begins here and goes into eternity. You can pray this with me. Lord Jesus, I come to you today. And I thank you for coming for me, for taking hell upon yourself, 
for me, to save me, rescue me. Right now, Lord Jesus, I just choose to allow you to be my good thing, my ultimate thing, your record to be my record, your life to be my life, your death and resurrection to be my own. I pray that you'd save me and change me now and carry me with you into eternity one day. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.